BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman. And before we start, I have really exciting news. I'm trying to think of different ways to get all of you the answers to your questions that you send. And I want to build a more connected community. So I am launching weekly free newsletters through Bulletin, draliza.bulletin.com where I'm creating a deeper community to chat with you in interactive video conversations each week. I'm going to answer live questions, get into the weeds and help with practical and realistic answers to your pressing concerns. I'll also be adding extra content around my personal views on timely and relevant news articles, scientific studies, books I'm reading and more, and behind the scenes extras you did not hear from some of your favorite podcast episodes. And there's a bonus, no ads. <laughs> so check out draliza.bulletin.com to learn more or see the link in the show notes or my bio on Instagram. You can also share your account with your partner, grandparents, and other members of your parenting village, as long as you feel comfortable sharing your password. And I am so excited to start the new year with Professor Adam Grant, who's an organizational psychologist at the Wharton School, and he's written books that have sold millions of copies. He has a TED Talk. He actually has multiple TED Talks. He has a podcast, Work Life with Adam Grant. And his ability to talk about leadership in the context of work is so translatable for parenting, not only for us to figure out ourselves, he's also chock full of tools to promote these skills in our kids. So today we're translating Adam Grant's tools from Think Again and his wonderful work into concrete tools for raising good humans. If you enjoyed this episode, I love hearing your feedback. Don't hesitate to subscribe, give a five-star rating, write a review and tell me what your favorite episode was. And of course, DM me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And I'm wishing everyone a wonderful 2022. I don't know if this has been part of your conversation, but I think that Think Again is an incredible parenting book. Thank you. I I have not heard that very often. So I'm very curious to hear more. Well, from the perspective of, so I'm a developmental psychologist, you're an organizational psychologist. So right out of the gate, I think we both understand that when people hear psychologists, they think of clinical, like you're just treating patients or clients and looking at psychopathology, but neither of our lenses are that lens. And the way you frame the book for me feels like a lot of the things, if not all of the things that my field, or at least for, I'll speak for me, that I think of in terms of raising good humans are concepts and constructs that you talk about. So secure attachment, you call it psychological safety. That is such a huge part of, it's the the beginning and most important and without it, you can't do anything else, right? For, for kids. And then autonomy, supportive parenting is such an important, I mean, it's everything. So much of the work that you're talking about really is supporting autonomy in those that you're leading. And then thinking again, just rethinking the, the act of it and all of the, all the, well, we'll see how much we can bring into today's conversation, but I think of executive function skills and the toolkit that you built to grow executive function skills 
flexible thinking and really self-regulation, the whole, the whole thing. Wow. For me, this felt like an incredible parenting book. And if you're a working parent or you're not a working parent, but you are, you're, you have leadership in your households and you're interested in communication skills and growing kids in this way and ourselves, because the rethinking for our own parenting is such a big starting point. This is a parenting book. I have thought for a while that if we chose our careers after we had kids, there would be a lot more developmental psychologists in the world. (laughs) I can't believe I chose developmental psychology before I had kids. Well, clearly, clearly you saw the future much more clearly than most of us. But, you know, it's it's so interesting. I I know just enough about attachment theory to be dangerous. Uh, (laughs) I know a little bit of a little bit more about self-regulation and autonomy support, but you're right. I hadn't framed any of these ideas through the lens of developmental psychology, but I think that it's ironic in a way that the skills I'm trying to teach adults are the ones that we're supposed to learn in childhood. Absolutely. And we can't really teach our kids until we've mastered them or at least are working on them. I I certainly have not mastered a single one of the skills that you talk about. Neither have I. So I haven't even read the book, honestly. (laughs) It's really good. (laughs) So given how you're framing the book. In your parenting, have you translated these ideas in your parenting? Probably not enough. I think I'm not always good at practicing what I teach. I think, you know, there there are little steps that that Allison and I put into action on a regular basis, um, some of which found their way into the education chapter. Uh, But it's not a coincidence that that I mostly wrote about teachers in schools as opposed to parents there. Uh, I think it's hard. I think where I've been clearest about this in my parenting, at least, is oftentimes, you know, I'll make a mistake as a parent. And then afterward, I'll say, okay, (laughs) talk to me about what you think I did wrong there and how you think I should have handled that situation instead. And I've tried to do that with, with work situations. You know, usually my kids will catch, they'll, they'll catch a glimpse of a Ted talk or a TV interview. And one of our daughters will say, you looked really goofy there. And then they'll do a hilarious impression of me. And then I'll ask them to reenact how I should have approached the body language (laughs) a little differently. That's usually what it comes down to. Or, you know, maybe modulated my voice a little bit more. And that's an opportunity to talk about, okay, that that was just a a performance I gave, right? It's, It's not necessarily my best work. I would like it to be better. So let's rethink how I approached it and how I prepared for it and how I delivered in the moment. And I think that my hope is that in those situations, I'm, I'm starting to teach our kids that rethinking the way you operate on a daily basis is a, is a useful skill and a good habit to be in. But the open question is whether they pick it up. When I started crossing the bridge from the ivory tower to Main Street, I steered as far away from parenting and kids as possible. I remember, this is almost a decade ago, I was finishing my first book, Give and Take, and I thought about maybe I should write a chapter about how to raise kids to be givers rather than takers or matchers. You know, I, I think obviously generosity is a core value that should be taught at home before it's learned anywhere else. And then I thought, wait a minute, I don't know a thing. We had two kids at the time and they were too young for me to know anything about parenting. Uh, I'm not a developmental psychologist. This is clearly not my forte. So I skipped it. And then the book came out and the most frequent question I got was, how do I raise my kid to be a giver? Mm-hmm. Oh. So <laughs> I think by that point, I had realized journalists write about this stuff all the time. Um, I'm at least as informed as a journalist, right? At least I have a, a doctorate in psychology and I know how to interpret these studies. So let me go and, and do a deep dive into what I can learn from developmental psychology research about nurturing generosity. And one of the things that really opened my eyes was this, um, this study at Harvard, which showed that Um, when you ask parents what they want in their kids, uh, they say two things more than anything else. I want my children to be happy and I want my children to be caring and kind. And when you ask their children what they think their parents want, the kids say achievement is number one. My parents want me to be successful. I'm sure you've never seen this (laughs) in any of your work, right? It's never come up. But that was a big rethinking moment for me because I realized there is a disconnect between what parents value and what they're communicating to their kids. And I started talking about that with with my wife, Allison, and and we decided that we were going to make it a a regular habit to change the conversations we had with our kids because it's so easy. You know this as a parent. It is so easy 
to focus all your questions when, when your kids come home on achievement, right? Tell me what grade you got on the test. How many goals did you score in soccer, right? It's all about what did you accomplish? Um, and, you know, sort of tracking successes and failures and trying to help them, you know, achieve excellence and avoid mistakes and stumbles. And we weren't talking at all about generosity. And so my idea was, let's do a weekly question where we ask, who's somebody you helped this week? Uh, how, how did you contribute to someone else's life? And we started doing this. And I was amazed at the, the results because not only did our, our kids have incredible stories of, you know, oh, one of my classmates was struggling on, a, on an in-class assignment and I, I offered a tip or, you know, they spilled something and I helped them clean up. But they started looking for opportunities to help because they knew we were going to ask about it. And it all of a sudden was something that we rewarded and celebrated. And then Allison had this brilliant idea and she said, why don't we also ask them who's helped them this week? I was like, why do we want to do that? I want our kids to be givers, not takers. And she said, I want them to pay attention to which kids are caring and kind. Right? I don't want them to just hang out with the kids who are cool or smart or you know, have high status for whatever reason. I want them to notice who actually shows them kindness and compassion. And so that was one of my first rethinking moments as a parent. I love this weekly practice of who did you help and who helped you? Let's say those are still, you hear this and you're like, that's still my goal, even if, because I think there are some people that would acknowledge that I think right now, happiness is a wonky thing that people are rethinking quite a bit. Yeah. Overall though, I would guess many parents are still as their overall, this is where I'm looking to the future, a happy kid. And one of the biggest predictors of any sort of happiness is giving and helping, as you know. So that practice was such a concrete tool. That's another thing that I'm, I'll raise, which is a lot of ideas are very hard to put into practice. Most of them if we're focused on our kids' happiness and achievement, for example, won't help us think about ourselves or our own emotions, behavior, growth. So in order to promote any of these skills in our kids and build those muscles, we have to have done that work. So yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I just to build on your point a little bit, Allison and I had a debate about this because... I remember first coming to her with this evidence and saying, look, the parents, they, they want caring, but they're, you know, they're, they're communicating achievement. And she said, well, I want our kids to be happy more than I want them to be caring. I was like, why would you want that? That's selfish. And she said, no, you, know, you don't want a, like a, a child who grows up to be miserable and you know, self-sacrifices and suffers. And that's one of the things you're really clear about in your own work on giving and taking is you know, you, you want to you wanna help in ways that are energizing rather than exhausting. And I said, yeah, but I don't want our kids to grow up to prioritize their own happiness above everyone else's either. And what we realized was <laughs> where, where I drew the line was like, I, I would be thrilled if our kids were an eight and a half on a 10 point happiness scale and a 10 on generosity. And she was more comfortable with reversing those two, but we both wanted both of those values to be high. And it ended up being a great discussion for us to say, okay, we need to make sure we teach our kids to give in ways that, you know, that are healthy and that are sustainable. And that way we can balance these values that are important to both of us, uh, which is, I think, I, a conversation more parents ought to have, right? It had never occurred to me to say, yeah, you know, of course we value generosity and happiness, but what's the rank order of those and how do we balance them? So have you guys done a family mission statement or it sounds like you have? We didn't do a mission statement. We did a, we actually did a values exercise values. a couple of summers ago. We did it during COVID, if I remember correctly, because we were bored. <laughs> we really needed something to do. No, I think um, it, it had become increasingly clear to us that, uh, that if we wanted our kids to know what was important to us, we didn't need, need to just talk about it. We actually needed to explain we do the following things in our family because of these values, right? So that they could connect our, our daily routines and rituals and habits to, to the underlying principles. And so we actually did this as a brainwriting exercise where we had our kids sit down and each write down what they thought the family values should be and said, what can we do day by day to try to live by these values? 
That's so huge because that was going to be my next question is if you asked your children, what would they say the core values are of the family? That's a massive win. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was actually encouraging that there wasn't a major disconnect between what we thought was important and what they either thought was important or thought we thought was important. And it's so much easier as yeah, you, you know much better than I do to invite kids to generate their own their own motivations as opposed to trying to shove them down their throats and, and saying, here, this is what you must believe and value. What I'm trying to get you to talk about <laughs> is getting a person, a, a teenager, we'll use in this example, or a tween, because you've got them, to imagine a scenario from a different perspective and to be self-reflective and to make a plan of action going forward versus finger wagging at them. <laughs> yeah. Something I noticed a few years ago was when I had an idea for what our kids should do if they had a dilemma. Um, yeah, I think in one case, it was which, which sport should I choose as my extracurricular activity? My instinct was to immediately try to guide them to what I thought the best solution was. And I know that the, the harder I work to do that, the more they're going to push back. Because I come across like a preacher who's already seen the light and you know, is proselytizing my own views. Yes. Or like a prosecutor who is attacking their views. And then like, what do they do when, when you show up as a parent, as a prosecutor? They bring their best defense attorney to the courtroom, right? And nobody wins. We're just butting heads. So what I tried to do instead was, I guess, take a page out of what I've, I've learned the hard way I have to do in office hours with my students too, which is first to try to clarify, well, what are you trying to accomplish here? What's your goal or what are your values? And then... Ask them, how can I be most helpful in, you know, in your efforts to figure this out? Are you, looking, are you actually looking for a solution? Because if you want one, like, I, I'm not you. I can't, I can't really know what's going to be in your best interest, but I can take what I know about you know, your priorities and, and try to help you weigh the options based on that. Mm-hmm. Or are you looking for, for me to just help you think through the process of how to choose? Or do you want me to hold up a mirror so that you can see your own blind spots more clearly? And I, I'd been really struck by this research that um, Alison Wood Brooks and her colleagues did on how the, the instinct that most of us have as advisors is to help people narrow their options. But most advice seekers actually want to broaden their options. Uh, they're looking for alternatives, not answers. Uh-huh. And so one of the things that I found myself doing with our kids in situations like that is, is asking, okay, you're torn between these two sports. What's behind door number three? Have you considered that one yet? I don't think there's a right answer here. What do you think is the best answer? By the way, each one of those little nuggets are sound bites to just memorize, not to be um, prescriptive about how we have conversations, but just because sometimes you get stuck and you're just like, what are the words that I'm looking for? And so those are just good to call on. You know, it's just like, do you want my advice or do you want me to listen? These, These are all, there are moments when they just don't, we don't know what they're looking for. And helping them figure out in that process will give them the tools to be able to do it on their own, hopefully. I had a mentor, Rick Price, who used to say, do you want sympathy or do you want solutions? <laughs> I hear that in my head so many times after I've, I've tried to kind of hammer a solution in and I'm realizing, wait a minute, they, that's not actually my role here. My, my role is to make sure that our kids feel understood and cared about and listened to, like you said. And then maybe they're like, no, 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 I actually want solutions. But the first part has to happen. It does. And when they, if they, yeah, if they do ask for solutions, right, then, then I'm actually helping as opposed to playing a game of tug of war. And I I should say full disclosure, Lisa, the reason I was excited to do this was that I thought I might learn something about how to be a better parent and maybe also come away with a research idea or two. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you questions at some point. So I have a question for you. Tell me. One of the things I have struggled with as a parent is the things that I worried about in, let's say, in middle school that are no longer at all important to me, like physical appearance or popularity. Is there a way or even a style of conversation to to help kids fast forward and realize that not only will I care about these things less when I'm an adult, but I can actually care about them a little bit less right now? Because I, I see them becoming increasingly prominent in school, right? And it's hard not to absorb the values and the status symbols of your environment. And it's so easy as a parent to say, yes, when I was your age, I stupidly thought those things were irrelevant too. 
And I even remember having some of those conversations with adults and saying, I don't care that you think I won't care about them one day. I care about them now. How do you navigate something like that? Well, and that's the key. What you just said is the the minute that you say to kids, what you feel right now is going to feel so small later on. And you won't even believe that it was important to you. If anything, not having certain of those traits, like popularity, for example, the well-liked popularity versus the powerful popularity, because there are two different kinds. The power popularity, that is not useful later in life and um, will not serve you. But explaining that to kids can shut them down in the same way. And I, I feel like you answered the question in the question, but I definitely didn't. (laughs) You just didn't see it. But your brain shuts down when you feel defensive. All of our brains go into some kind of red zone. And especially when it's super important to us and someone doesn't believe it. And so the approach is absolutely holding those values at home as adults so they can see that you're not completely focused on what's going on at this, you know, in the gossip or what, you know, spill the tea or where you're going or what party you're going to or who your friends are. So you're modeling that in your life in those moments when it's becoming a core value for kids, which is very natural as they start to figure out, get their sea legs in middle school is to check in with how they feel about when they're around certain people and how others feel around them. So that's where you can ask things like, is that powerful or popular? Or how, what does that even mean to you, popularity? When you even begin to talk about how important it is or not important it is, that's when they have to sell you on how important it is. So out of the gates, you're going to get closer by saying either I remember or I know that is so important to you right now. And it's so important to your peers right now. And that is a major challenge. And sometimes it's just like letting them unleash about it. It's so hard if you have a tween who's like criticizing friends, talking about how nasty somebody was, then trying desperately to be friends with them. Like so many strange (laughs) things happen and you just want to, or they're not getting invited to certain parties. And you think you want to say, you're so psyched that you're not at that party. That party is going to be everything that is, you know, ruining your future. And it's so good (laughs) not to be there. But being a compassionate listener, while they move through the feeling of being miserable about it is so much more powerful because the emotions they move through very quickly. Yeah, then you've listened. So the and then you live the values. So just allow for the emotions, live the values. And then when they're in their more rational brain, ask them, how it went or so what was the feedback after the party? I don't know why I'm using a party as an example when we're still not partying, but um, anything where you can listen and have them not feel judged. Cause the other problem with bringing up how unimportant something will be later is there is just inherent judgment. Like I'm not going to share with you that this superficial thing is so important to me because you're too aware that you know, you don't have the, you don't share that value anymore. So I'm going to look like a disappointment Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to see that. Um, That's not a conscious thing. When you're 13 years old, you'll just butt heads because why would you want to even feel that feeling of rejection or disappointment or the judgment of your parent? Okay. I want to take a little break so that I can tell you a little bit about my sponsors. It's the new year. This is everyone's time to make resolutions I prefer intentions so that you don't get so hard on yourself. And one of the intentions I hope is to take care of yourself, refocus on self-compassion and care and not being stuck. So rather than making mental health a goal, make mental health part of your daily intention and part of your daily routine. And you can use Talkspace. Talkspace personally matches you with a licensed therapist you can connect with right from your phone or computer so you can get help whenever you need it. These typical January New Year's resolutions are a wonderful concept, but in fact, they usually make you just feel like a failure right about now in the middle of the month because we're tallying up our shortcomings when we make resolutions. 
or saying that we want to lose weight or we want a different kind of relationship or our career hasn't reached certain goals and it needs to be better. And what happens is you cling to the past, you criticize yourself, and then you make such huge goals that you give up on them and you find yourself in the middle of the month of January feeling like a failure. So instead of all of that nonsense, support yourself. Therapy can really help and it can help you learn, most importantly, to be kinder to yourself. And in doing so, you will actually meet many more of your goals and you can keep moving forward. Talkspace makes it easy to get the help you need and to make long-lasting progress with your mental health all year round. Also, importantly, Talkspace treats your privacy and security as their top priority so that you get access to a private virtual room with just you and your therapist. And Talkspace's encryption and added security features keeps your conversation fully protected. And unlike traditional therapy, I really love the Talkspace fits into your schedule and not the other way around. So with live chats and videos and audio sessions, you can fit mental health in a way that fits your lifestyle. Make your mental health more than just another New Year's resolution with Talkspace. Visit Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month when you use the promo code HUMANS at sign up. That's $100 off at Talkspace.com promo code HUMANS. Did you know that an estimated 5 billion plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away each year? Because I did not. And each one of those bottles can be made of more than 90% water. Stop wasting water and throwing out more plastic. Get Blue Land's revolutionary refill cleaning system instead. A lot of people think eco-friendly products are more expensive and less effective, especially when it comes to cleaning. So it might say all natural, but you're not really sure if it gets the job done. Blue Land has fixed that with its revolutionary refill tablets. Blue Land was founded on the belief that a cleaner planet starts at home. It's a simple idea. Buy the bottle once, refill it forever. No more plastic waste. From their best-selling clean essentials kit to their hand soap duo, Blue Land offers safe, smart options for every inch of your home. Just fill Blue Land's beautiful. I mean, honestly, when I got the first package and opened it up, I didn't even believe it was cleaning products. So you fill these bottles with warm water, pop one of the hand soap or spray cleaner tablets, and within minutes, you have powerful and effective cleaning products in the most incredible scents, such as Irish agave, lemon, lavender, eucalyptus, and more. And now Blue Land has teamed up with Disney to create a magical collection of Hand Soap Forever bottles designed for kids to get excited about. Blue Land's stunning high-quality Forever bottles start at just $10 when you buy a kit, and you're meant to reuse it forever with money-saving refill tablets that start at $2. Right now, you can get 20% off your first order when you go to blueland.com slash humans. That's 20% off your first order of any product. Blueland orders at blueland.com slash humans. Blueland.com slash humans. In a perfect world, what would you like to get done every day? Starting your day with de-stress blend is the first step to making healthy decisions throughout the day. The CBD market has become extremely saturated over the last few years, and it seems like you can buy CBD in almost every coffee shop or grocery store out there. Many of the CBD companies out there source their hemp from industrial farms in China. So be careful where you buy your CBD, because just like with low-quality tea, low-quality alcohol, low-quality products that seem like they're plant-based, it can have an undesired effect. NED is USDA certified organic. That's a big deal because these are things that grow in the ground and you are putting them into your body. And we know that in the ground means it's going to have surrounding pesticides. All of Ned's full spectrum hemp oil is extracted from USDA certified organic hemp plants grown by an independent farmer. These products are science-backed, Ned full spectrum hemp oil, Ned de-stress blend, and Ned balance blend. They are officially... USDA certified organic this corner. The sleep blend will not be certified organic because it contains the compound CBN. These products are science-backed, nature-backed, nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. And 
I want to talk about Ned's incredible new product, which has been developed over the last year, the De-Stress Blend. This one-on-one formula of CBD and CBG is made from the world's purest full-spectrum hemp and features a botanical infusion of ashwagandha, cardamom, and cinnamon. And it's USDA certified organic. Ned's CBD products have over 2,000 five-star reviews and they work with incredible partners within the medical field like Dr. Caroline Leaf, Dr. Christian Gonzalez, and one of Dear Media's favorites, Dr. Will Cole. If you'd like to give Ned a try, Raising Good Humans listeners get 15% off Ned products with the code HUMANS. Visit H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D dot com slash humans to get access. That's helloned.com slash humans to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of the most common health issues. Hi, I'm Kara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll Bennett. We're the co-hosts of the Puberty Podcast. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. I love your question of what does popularity mean to you? And I could see taking it even a step further and asking, well, you know, who are the kids who are well-liked um, yes. and, and how did they get there? What do they do? And I bet not all of them are dominant and controlling and self-promoting and you know, sort of hoarding status to, to try to get admired. Um, maybe some of them are caring and kind. Maybe some of them are curious and, you know, just are interested in things that other people find interesting and therefore they're drawn to them. That, that sounds like a conversation really worth having. I actually would love if you have that conversation to hear what happens when your kids start observing what are the qualities that the well-liked kids have. Chances are, and in the, the literature, I'll send you some some of the literature, although it's a little bit so interesting right now how it can pan out in the context of weird school situations and weird social situations. It's very hard to do some of the things that we do when we are well-liked even just physical touch or respectful body language or the way that your countenance looks when you're in a conversation that's all out the window and certain extracurricular activities and certain leadership roles. So it will be very interesting to hear what kids have to say right now, but asking that question and getting them to start observing how to get to that answer. And incidentally, even if they don't have an answer, they heard you even if they're rolling their eyes, it's just planted in there somewhere Mm -hmm. and it will be on their mind. The other approach that I think connects to to the philosophy that you're outlining here is, I I remember a while back reading some research on mattering and the sense that that kids feel they matter, which I think Gregory Elliott had defined as, as feeling that other people notice you, care about you and rely on you. And I was so struck that most parents, at least in my experience, focus on the first two. We pay attention to our kids. We want them to feel unconditional love. But nowhere in my education as a parent was the idea that kids need to feel relied on, that counting on them, showing them that they make a difference, gives them a sense of confidence and responsibility. And so after I read that, one of the things I started doing was when I had a dilemma, I would actually ask our kids for advice. I remember preparing for my first TED talk and being extremely nervous and asking our kids, what should I do? <laughs> How should I manage my anxiety? And then a few weeks later, uh, our oldest had a play and she was nervous. And instead of me trying to give her suggestions, I said, hey, tell me, what, what did you suggest to me again? And then she was able to rely on her own judgment and, and learn that she could trust her own judgment in a situation like that. And it makes me wonder if there's broader applicability of like if, you know, if I'm in this conversation with our kids about a dilemma they have at school, instead of trying to give them direct ideas, should I ask them, what advice would you give to someone else in your shoes? So translating that anytime your kids have a dilemma, asking them if they can't think about it for themselves, like what advice would a friend who cares about you, like one of those friends who you actually think has your best interest at heart, what would their advice be? And then you can 
play games with, you know, and what would the kind of crappy friend advice be? <laughs> Just because it's that all might be an oxymoron. <laughs> that is so true. But being able to use that language in your own head of like the the person who you know it has your back and what would they say? And even the one who you think doesn't have your back, what would they say? It's all your own voice. It's just learning how to separate the different voices in your head so that you can choose the one that's giving you the guiding light. So that's a great practice to get them to be able to generate their own guidance, especially by practicing giving you guidance and giving their siblings guidance. I mean, it's tricky with siblings because you can get like the older sibling who's just a know-it-all. Yep. So it's, it's also a matter of giving all purpose and responsibility in areas that aren't just emotional, but even chores, like having something in the household that is your responsibility that people need you to do is going to translate even when it comes to interpersonal skills. This reminds me a little bit of something that I was intrigued by that I learned about in, um, from Denmark, which is this cake time practice they have for, it starts in elementary school with kids. Do you know about this? No, no tell worries. me about this. Okay, so as I understand it, cake time is this, it's a weekly tradition. I think even as a first grader in Denmark, you bring a pastry for the class and you present a problem that you're facing or a challenge that's in front of you. And then the rest of the class tries to pitch in and come up with ideas for how to tackle it or solve it. I wonder if we could do this as a family to say, let's, let's, ideally we're not having cake every day, but let's rotate. Like what if we sat down at dinner once a week and we said, okay, who has a challenge and let's all workshop how to deal with it. I love that cake time. I have not heard about cake time, but it's a great idea. The cake is apparently the most important part. (laughs) Key being nobody has the right answer. Like no one gets the crowning wisdom it's not guaranteed that dad, because of his career expertise or wisdom of age, is going to have the right advice so that you feel like your word and your thoughts are valuable. I am finding in school, when kids come home from school to talk about current events, they have incredibly powerful feelings. And this is just a a feature of youth and executive function skills there's not that much flexibility or perspective taking necessarily without a tremendous amount of work. And because the world feels so right versus wrong right now, it's getting even more exacerbated. You have some exercises for helping open a mind that you translated into the household. And granted, these are not, this is the time for wiring So you have the eight to, what's your, your oldest is 13. 13. So this is prime time for wiring, not, we don't have to think about rewiring anything. It's prime time for for wiring. (laughs) So I wanted to think about wiring the brain for flexible thinking. And you have some suggestions if you want a reminder. My, I would love a reminder. I was going to say my, my favorite thing that, that our kids started actually was um, this family myth busting conversation. Yep, where, that's the one. Okay, good. So it actually started when we, we were just sitting at dinner one night and I think I had asked our kids whether they learned anything surprising this week. And I think our, our middle daughter said, guess what? King Tut didn't die in a chariot accident. What? <laughs> this, this violates everything I thought I knew about Egyptian history. What, what are you talking about? Tell me more. And she, she described, you know, some of the forensic evidence that had been gathered and how they were learning about. Um, he, it seemed like he would probably had um, a disease that contributed to his untimely demise. And it was just incredibly eye-opening. And it hit Allison and me around the same time that our kids are learning lots of things in school that falsify what we thought were, were truths. I mean, I'm, I'm still upset, honestly, that Pluto is not a planet. I was just going to say Pluto not being a planet is still not like, I'm still confused. (laughs) I haven't come to grips with it. What else? What are are the other lies about the solar system? Maybe our galaxy is a Snickers bar, not a Milky Way. Like what's coming next? Anyway, but our kids just thought it was hysterically funny that we learned these things that are clearly now wrong. And we decided that that's something we should try to make salient more often. And so anytime we think of something that we learned in school that now has been you know, either debunked or complicated in some way. We, we actually like to describe it first the way we were taught it. 
and then, you know, highlight the evolution. And in other cases, like they can't wait to correct us on things and, you know, sort of challenge our assumptions. And so, yeah, I don't know if every family should do a weekly myth busting conversation. I don't think we do it every week, but it's so much fun when it happens. And it goes back to, it feels so good to be able to have something that you can offer and contribute to the conversation in a meaningful way. And by the way, this happens in preschool, like preschoolers are coming home with new stuff. (laughs) And also if you don't have the memory of school, like I don't have great, I can't recall everything that I learned in school. So some of it is not even, it's, it's like, did I even learn it that way? Now I can't even remember what, what I got wrong or right. And what, what's myth busting and what's just my horrible memory. But there is so much for them to myth bust. So that's such a good practice. And- well, and it, our, our kids have, have also learned, I think, something else from those conversations, which is we're very quick to laugh at ourselves. And sometimes I, I individually was I'm like, how can I possibly have believed this? I was really uninformed. And other times it's our whole generation that was ignorant. And so our, our kids like to laugh about, they call us old wash, which I guess is the, the old person's version of brainwashed. Okay. <laughs> and they, they just, they think it's the funniest thing in the world that, like that, that they, own, they know a lot of things that we don't. And I'm not trying to send a message that, <laughs> that they have more knowledge than we do. What I'm trying to teach them is that like, when you discover you're wrong, it's okay to poke a little fun at yourself. And in fact, if you can laugh at those moments, you're faster to recognize when you were wrong. And that means you're also faster to get it right, which is ultimately the goal last time I checked. And I'm so glad that you mentioned, it's not that you're trying to undermine your position as somebody who's knowledgeable and safe. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like everything I've ever learned is just nonsense, but it's just about being open-minded and relearning things when you we're wrong and getting really fluent in that language. It sounds like you guys have that and a sense of humor. So that's a huge, not only is it wonderful to have a sense of humor, it also just the act of laughing stops you from being reactive because you're, you're breathing and you're laughing and it lightens things, which is incredibly powerful for this particular age. What about your parenting? your your parenting and Allison's parenting, have you rethought because you were not necessarily on the same page? And how did you get there? How can we oh, that's a good question. Re, kind of rethink if we're not if we're not on the same page, but we want to feel understood and maybe change a mind? Oh, that's a great question. The first thing that's coming to mind for me is a version of you you know that I have occasionally been called a logic bully. Uh, maybe more often than occasionally, because when I think someone is wrong, it's it's our job as social scientists to correct them, which strangely never goes well. It doesn't can't, go well. That can't figure out why. But Allison pointed out that there's a version of that that rears its ugly head when when like if I get into a disagreement with our kids, I, I just can't let it go. And the reason I can't let it go is I want to resolve the problem, and that's my way of of having a conflict as a conflict averse person. And she said, no, <laughs> no, this is a huge mistake. Nobody, nobody is good at reasoning when they're unreasonable. By definition, that's a fail. And so when you see the emotions rising, when you, know, when you pick up the body language that, <laughs> that, that they're shutting down, that's when you need to walk away. And of course, what did I do? I immediately pushed back and started arguing against that. I'm like, oh, I'm making the mistake right here. And the more we talked about it, the more I realized that she was right. That the very situations where I'm most motivated to make my point uh, are the situations where it's least likely to get hurt. And so what I have tried to do over time, and I don't always succeed, is to remember that like, when I get the most frustrated or when, I am the most, when I'm in the position of strongest conviction, is when I actually need to step away. When you're in the position of strongest conviction is when you need to step away. And how do you step away without it feeling like you're rejecting? Well, I mean, what I, what I intend to do and, and sometimes manage to do yeah. is I want to say something like, <laughs> this is probably not a good frame of mind to have this argument in. Let's talk about it later. Oh. Uh, pretty simple, that's, right? That's great. I mean, if you, if you can get yourself to that place, that's a, that's a, that's the great. hard part is to recognize it though, because 
usually when I get into that mode, I'm on autopilot. I don't even realize that I'm, I'm being a logic bully. Uh, I think I'm, you know, I'm like having a, an impassioned debate, which is going to result in the enlightenment of the person on the receiving end of my <laughs> superior opinions. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to be that person anymore. Uh, but I think catching it is the trick, right? And and knowing, like, I have, you know, I have a couple of scripts, right? That's that's one of them. Is like, let's talk about this later. Another is, I, <laughs> I really, I really want to win this argument, and. I don't want this to be about winning. So <laughs> let's talk about this when I don't have the goal of, of being right. I love that too. Incidentally, if you find yourself arguing with a small person, <laughs> it's always a sign <laughs> <laughs> that perhaps it's that moment. <laughs> that's that's a really good Winning is the goal. <laughs> Wait, like, what, do you, what do you mean that when our kids were three, they couldn't reason with us? Right. That's a like watching a tantruming kid and trying to reason with them without realizing that you're having your own tantrum and trying to like force the reasoning. So Such true. A wild moment in parenting. It's hilarious. If only it weren't happening to you while you're in the middle of it. Like, I would, I would love to watch the replay of that. That would be a great moment to being able to go back and watch the replays of interacting with your kids during those moments. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned something that I just want to acknowledge, which is just that you guys had in your core values, like wanting, you know, eights, nines, tens. I was thinking parenting in general, but not in these, not finding these core values, but like even a seven, I mean, I feel like we're, this is a field where a, a B minus, even a C plus is, Although I guess technically a seven would not be, <laughs> would not be a C plus, but getting it wrong for enough of the time that you start to recognize how hard and harmful it would be to get it right all the time. Cause you talk a lot about the importance of like how relationships can grow through conflict. If you didn't have those ruptures and this is developmental science, it's not me. But if you don't have those ruptures in the relationship, you don't have repair and then you don't have as strong of a foundation. And it sounds like, to me, I translate that as like, this is the one thing in life, even if we're high achievers and we want things to go exactly as we want them to go, that getting a B minus is in fact a more powerful goal. I, I think you're spot on. I think that's in my my um, uninformed forays into a little bit of developmental science, one of the things that I found most encouraging is like how clearly bad is stronger than good. I like it. I, like, I, I think it's in some ways ironic that this is a podcast about raising good humans, because I think if you want to raise good humans, like my takeaway from a lot of this research is you just have to be really careful not to be a bad human. <laughs> like if, like, the, like Probably the most important thing we do as parents, right, is to not be abusive to not be invalidating, right? And then I feel like getting things right or doing them well is, is sort of icing on the cake. Gravy, have, totally. Yeah, have I, have I interpreted that accurately? In the developmental literature, I would say bad is much more, yes, much more harmful than good. That good enough is great. And yes. that if you're interested and curious, you're probably not in the bucket of a neglectful, abusive parent. So you're already like the odds are in your favor. I'll take, I'll take those odds. You just reminded me, Aliza, of, of something funny when you were talking about uh, repairing ruptures and the idea of some conflict being healthy because it learned it. Well, I guess some conflict being healthy because it teaches you how to, how to deal with problems and work through them together. And it reminded me of this moment a few years ago when I was, I was driving our girls home from gymnastics and yeah, they were sort of picking at each other. And, you know, I normally say like, stop calling each other names or something like that. And I just got sick of saying the same thing over and over again. And I don't know what came over me, but I remember saying to them, all right, you know what? You can say whatever you want to each other, as long as you're both smiling. That's great. And it, it ended up being pretty hilarious. Like they, they, they brought out these sort of, if you remember the movie, The Sandlot, uh, oh. <laughs> these insults like, you bob for apples in the toilet and you like it. <laughs> uh, it was, and it was so much fun to watch. I was like, okay, what I want to teach them is it's okay to fight as long as they're not hurting each other or being disrespectful to each other. 
Yeah. And, and, ele- and like lightening up because you, especially with siblings, like they say such horrible things to each other at a certain point. If you can laugh at that moment of just like, there was so much tension there that you said the craziest stuff, but you, you're able to laugh together. Then we parents can know they've figured this out. They've figured out how to fail. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's another holiday that's game to try. Who, who can come up with the most ridiculous insult that everybody yeah. thinks is funny. And the only parameter should be that you're not, um, <laughs> I don't know. Everybody's going to have their own rules of sword fighting. I'd probably say like, um, no statements about who they are as people. Just, yes. just the ridiculous insult of like what they like to do or whatever the bobbing for apples and what. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it bears repeating. <laughs> okay. So you wrote two children's books that reflect some of the tools that, that you write about in your grown up life. <laughs> <laughs> we tried. So Allison had the idea for both of them. Uh, the first one is called The Gift Inside the Box. And it's about a, <laughs> an experience that, that she noticed. Like We live in a world where packages just arrive on our doorstep magically. And our kids have no idea where they came from. And we were a little worried that maybe it breeds a little bit of entitlement. Mm-hmm. And so she said, what if we write about the box arriving and all these kids saying, me, 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 me. And then the box actually is looking for the kid who's a giver who wants to share or give the package to someone else. And so it's, it's designed to be this interactive book where you know, the kids sort of fill in what's going on when all the, like, the children in the book are grabby. And then you end the book by asking your kid, what do you think is in the box and who would you give it to? Which we had a lot of fun with. And you wrote that before COVID. Before- we wrote it before COVID, yes. <laughs> so that worry has come. Only intensified. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, so much. So that, um, okay. that's the first one. And then, thank you. The second one is called Leaf in the Fall. And it's about a leaf named Leaf who's afraid to fall in the fall. And um, that one is uh, more of a traditional story, but Allison had this really creative idea of what if he, he creates all these contraptions with a friend of his to try to brace his fall and they all fail. And then he learns at the end, in fact, that it was the failed efforts and the continued persistence that actually broke his fall at the end. And um, we, we really wanted to just highlight for kids um, the, the importance of persisting with creative ideas. It was so nice to meet you. Stay in touch. I will, for sure. Thank you. Happy New Year. Same to you. Bye. Bye. 